All right, good morning. Uh, my name is David Soren. I am the lead pastor of Renovation Church. Morning to you. Hey, we are just 14 days away of finally being back in our building uh, on October 1st, so we are just so pumped about that. Um, so what that means is uh, we said one more Sunday. Next Sunday will, is our last Sunday in the gym, uh, and then we will finally be back on October 1st. I just want to say, while I have you all here, a, a few things about being back. So when we get back, the building is not done. There are still six months of construction. We are just at the point in construction where we can now safely get back in there and have services again. So we're pumped to be back, but obviously there are limitations of being back because we're not even halfway through this massive construction project yet. So I just want to talk through a few of those limitations so you have the right expectations uh, when we get back to the building. So. Probably the biggest setback that we've had in this whole construction process has been kind of in the, the, the rear of the worship center where we have the elevated seating now. Our actual seats, chairs for that area, have been caught in the supply chain, and we've been informed that they may now not arrive until just before Christmas. Now, we still have more seats in the room. I don't know if you remember how it looked, but the classrooms essentially jutted into the worship center, so there's more room on the floor now. Actually, we can fit almost 100 more chairs on the floor, and we can fill the first row of the elevated seating area. So we're hoping that we have enough chairs, but that area won't be fully full, fully full, fully full with chairs until uh, closer to uh, Christmas. Um, for those of you that have kids, when we were in uh, the building previously in the spring, we had six kids, kids' classrooms. Now when we go back, we're going to have five. And two of them are temporary rooms that are smaller than our original rooms. And so that's a limitation, right? And so what that means is if you have a 10-year-old or an 11-year-old, they're going to have to be in the worship center with us uh, in the fall until we're able to open our extended kids' wing, which will happen in January, where we'll go to actually having 11 kids' classrooms, and they'll be able to be back into their uh, kids' rooms, which would be great. And then uh, one uh, final note regarding parking. So the south end of the parking lot, so if you're not good at your uh, never-eat-soggy-weedies, uh, south is like closer to Quick Trip. Uh, that part of the parking lot, along with the Lexington uh, right in, right out, uh, is not finished yet, and they don't think it'll be finished now until like mid-October. So that part of the parking lot won't be ready when we get back on the 1st, but we still have our regular parking lot, and they added 170 spots to the north, so we're going to be more than fine. But uh, don't try and turn in off of Lexington, or you might go into like a construction zone ditch. I'm just, I am hereby not responsible if you try that, okay? Uh, and then before we get to the message, let me say one final thing about Illuminate. So Illuminate is what we're calling our project. We had $5.1 million pledged uh, back in February, which was amazing. We are almost... So Illuminate technically started April 1st, so that means we're almost six months into Illuminate already, which is crazy. However, almost 25% of you have not started giving in your pledge yet. Uh, okay, we know uh, life happens. We know summer's crazy. People are all over, all over the place. We love you. But it is time now uh, to get started. There are 40 to 50 construction workers out there every single day uh, with real bills to pay. And we, we want to represent Christ well to this community and keep our word. And so if you haven't started, you just kind of forgot, it slipped your mind, uh, you got to start this week. Uh, get, get, we need you in the game. Uh, if you need to grab an auto withdrawal form on your way out or from our website or just go on, there's so many ways to do it. You just got to check Illuminate. But uh, we need you at this point, and you're going to see that uh, when we get back. So 
Uh, thank you. I'm so excited for you to see it uh, in 14 days. Okay, uh, let's get into our message. We are continuing uh, in week two of a series called Remember Who You Are, where we're taking three weeks to look at three different scriptures on three different Christian identities, all a part of the biblical sacrificial system. So last week, we took a, leak, a look at the idea that you are a priest as a Christian, and this week we're going to explore the biblical concept that you as a Christian are a temple. So I want to start by showing you the history of the temple in the scriptures, or specifically of God dwelling with his people. So if you open up to the beginning chapters of the Bible, you see that God creates the heavens, he creates the earth, and he creates people, and we read that in the Garden of Eden that he dwelled with them, he walked among them. But then Adam and Eve, they plucked the fruit, right? They sin, they're cast out of Eden, and we don't really read about, about God dwelling with his people again until Moses is leading the Israelites through the wilderness, and God instructs them to build what essentially is a portable temple, and it's called the tabernacle. It looked kind of like this. So, this is their tabernacle, and in the back of the tabernacle was uh, the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies was this special box called the Ark of the Covenant, and it was set above that box that God's presence dwelt in a unique and special way. So they carried this around wherever they went in the wilderness. Well, eventually they make it into the Promised Land, and they're still offering sacrifices and worshiping at the tabernacle, actually for 400 years into the Promised Land, until King Solomon builds what is the first temple, which is basically the same structure, but they've built a permanent home for the tabernacle now. And you can see on the inside, much of the theme, even if you study the temple, was related back to the Garden of Eden. It's this idea that God is dwelling with his people. Now that temple exists from about 950 BC all the way to 586 BC when King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians come in, exile the people, and destroy the temple. Well, there's no temple for 70 years during exile, but as we learned this summer with Zechariah, the temple was rebuilt in 516 BC, and we get the second temple, and this temple, and this is actually a drone shot of the temple. They actually, I don't know why you didn't laugh at that, because there were no drones. Uh, okay, well, now we'll use that third service. That's fine. Um, uh, <laughs> This temple existed all the way from 516 BC, almost 600 years actually, all the way to 70 AD when the Romans invaded Jerusalem. So that's even after the time of Jesus, and they destroyed the city, including the temple. And fascinatingly, the Jews never rebuild the temple. And I believe that God allows that to happen for a reason, because... At the death of Jesus, a physical building for a temple is no longer needed. Remember last week we talked about how there was that curtain that veiled off the Holy of Holies? Well, at the death of Jesus, it rips from the top down, and God's presence is now going out into individual believers. So there are a number of verses in the New Testament that say whenever a person makes a decision to believe in Jesus, to accept him as their Lord and Savior, what happens is the Holy Spirit, who is God, remember the Trinity is the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells, lives in the believer, and that therefore makes the believer a what? A temple of the Holy Spirit. And that's the phase that we're in right now, what theologians call the church age. Now, eventually, Jesus will come back, and when he comes back, he's going to restore all things, including our earth. The earth will be renewed. We'll have a new earth, and then everything comes full circle. God will walk among us again like he did with Adam and Eve. That's pretty cool. But the stage that we're in right now is where 
you are a temple. And some verses in the Bible actually explicitly say it that way. Let me show you a couple of them. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. We'll put it on the screen. It says, don't you know that you yourselves... Christians are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16 says, What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Ephesians 2 says the same thing. A passage we were in last week, 1 Peter chapter 2, says that we are the living stones of the temple. But perhaps the most explicit place in the Bible that you really can read about us being a temple is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I want us to study that passage this morning. So go ahead and get out your Bibles. Uh, We're going to be on uh, chapter 6, starting on verse 12. Uh, Whether you grabbed a Bible from out in the hallway, or you brought your own, or you use our app, you can just uh, tap on the Sunday services uh, tab. Uh, I'm looking forward to having Bibles back under the chair in some building. That's going to be sweet to have. Um, and so Paul is the author of this letter of First Corinthians, and he's writing to new Christians in Corinth, and these Christians have struggled mightily with sin, in part because Corinth actually historically was one of the most immoral cities of the ancient world. So Corinth was famous for the temple of Aphrodite. Have you heard that name before? So Aphrodite was the goddess of love. And from this temple, they would send down 1,000 temple prostitutes uh, into the city. By the way, if you do have kids in here, this message is a little bit more on the topic of, you can catch where I'm going here. So we do have kids ministry, but I just want to let you know that that's, that's where we're going today. Um, so they sent down 1,000 temple prostitutes into the city every day for people to worship. So that's the city that these new Christians lived in. And as a part, as a consequence of living in such a fallen culture or a a fallen uh, city, these Corinthians have some pretty major misunderstandings of how they should live and particularly how they should look at their bodies. So I want you to see how Paul responds to them. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to be at uh, verse 12. Okay, here's what Paul says. Now, he's actually quoting what they said to him here at the beginning. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality. It's a fancy word for sin. But for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Okay, that's a heavy scripture. There's a lot in there. I feel like we could spend four weeks just on this passage. In fact, this is such a pressing topic, I think, in our culture. And one of the things we are going to do is we're going to spend three to four weeks uh, doing a gender and sexuality series in, in January. And I think that's going to be really important uh, for our church. But today, what I want to do is I want to focus specifically on this topic of you are a temple. And a huge part of why I wanted to teach on this particular biblical truth is because our culture, I think, 
a lot like the confused Corinthian Christians, I think our culture is becoming more and more confused about sex and more and more confused about the body. I mean, look at what the Corinthians said back to Paul. So like verse 12, right? They say, I have the right to do anything. These are Christians. Verse 13, they say this curious phrase. They say, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. Now, in Greek, you could translate that as uh, YOLO. Um, that's, a, <laughs> uh, that's essentially what they're saying, okay? You only live once. They're saying, it's just, it's just flesh, okay? It's just bones. It's just a body. It's, gonna, it's a body that's going to die. They're essentially saying, because they use this um, connection to eating, so they're saying, like, just like we can eat what we want, sexually, we can do what we want. It's just a body. Right? Does that sound familiar? Okay? So what we're seeing in our day is the same sort of dualistic thinking. So I would say today, the prevailing secular, that just means non-religious, the prevailing secular thinking out there is the idea that the body is almost an entirely separate entity than our true identity. That's a totally different thought than what the scripture says. In fact, because this is getting confusing to navigate in our culture, I want to actually recommend a book to you this morning. Uh, We can put that on the screen. It's a book by uh, Nancy Piercy, excellent book. It's called Love Thy Body. And what she does in this book is she does a great job of differentiating from the culture and explaining that biblically, who you are as a person is a unified being. So what that means is that you are a soul composed of a mind, spirit, and body, and all of those things are you. And Piercy shows in this book that it's important that Christians, because of the culture that we live in, that we begin to study the Bible again on what it says about the body and what it says about our identity, because more and more in America today, you'll hear people say things like, I am not who my body says I am. Okay, well, what's underneath that? Dig deeper than what you hear on social media. Philosophically, what they're saying is that I, my identity, is distinct, that it is separate from my body. Now, the Bible, because it's the word of God meant for all of eternity, it's so helpful here, right? Because even 2,000 years ago, on a different part of the planet, the Corinthians essentially felt the same way. Just like many Americans who are engaging in, in, in sexual sin, right? We have the proliferation of hookup culture happening right now. The Corinthians, in a really similar way, they didn't see a morality. I just mean like a good or a bad attached to the physical act of sex because they saw the body as separate from who they were. And Paul's writing them back and saying, no, 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 no. It's you, you th- that, that is you. Your body is a part of you. And he says, and it's meant for the Lord. In fact, he has a really high view of the body. In fact, if you keep reading the letter and you get to chapter 15, you see that Paul's going to say, God is actually going to take your body, that body, the one you have right now, he's going to take that body and he's going to renew that one when you die. And that body is going to live forever. So your body is important. And then, because they really don't understand the body, Paul takes it up to another level entirely, and he says, not only is your body a part of who you are, your body, if you're a Christian, is a temple for the Holy Spirit. Whoa. Now we're on a different level. But what does that mean? 
You know, sometimes Christians throw that out, like, remember your body as a temple, right? But I don't know if we actually thought deeply on what it means that you're a temple for the Holy Spirit. So I want to do that with the remainder of my time, and I want to give you three implications of what it means that you are a temple, that that's your identity. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay, here's the first one. Number one, you are a temple, and what that means, what we need to remember, is that that means that God is with you all the time. Now, if I just was speaking with you out in the hallway and I ask you, hey, yes or no, do you believe God is with you? I'm sure that most of you can answer, yes, I believe that he is with me. But I'm not sure that we really live like he is, like he's with us. Like what did verse 19 say? It literally says that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. The living God is in us. Do we live like that? I'm not sure that we do. And let me just explain it to you this way. So this summer... Uh, at our building down the road uh, during construction. I'm not still to this day sure how it happened, but we had a few young people find their way into our building and write graffiti on our white walls. Now, it's all painted over, it's all taken care of, it's rectified, and also don't worry about that. But just for the sake of illustration, I want you to pretend with me that while that was happening, let's say I called you on the phone, and I said, my friend, I need you. And what I need from you is I need you to live in our worship center for the next seven days. Like, come prepare, bring your super soaker, like, whatever you need. You're going to protect, protect the house, right? You're going you're gonna to be in this space, and I want you to just be there and live there for seven days to make sure nothing happens to the worship center. Okay, if you lived 24-7 in the church worship center for seven days— do you think you would live the same as you do at home? Actually, maybe it's just me, but I actually think this is a fascinating thought experiment. <laughs> like, okay, would you have the same people over? Would you, like when you're texting your friends, you're on the phone with your friends, you know, if you were sitting on the church stage, would you gossip the same? Would you eat the same? Would you drink the same? How many glasses of wine would you pour in the church worship center? Would you use the same language? Think about like the shows you've been streaming the last seven days. Would you stream the same shows through the church projector? Would you watch pornography from a church worship chair? My guess is those seven days would look different probably for each and every one of us, but why? I actually think we've got to understand the why because whatever that why is, it's engendering, it's fostering some sort of holiness in us. And I think for a lot of us, it's because we were taught that a church, or particularly the, a worship space, is holy, that uh, God's presence is there in a special way. Now, I think what God does on a Sunday morning, especially through the gathering of the saints of the corporate body, I think that's really special. However, I think we've kind of been misled on this in Christian history in America, right? Let me give you an example of this. Uh, often, what would you say is the main word that churches use to call their worship space? Probably sanctuary through the history, right? Um, sanctuary literally means holy space. Or sometimes in charismatic traditions or the assemblies of God, um, they'll, the pastor will even call it like God's house or the house of the Lord, right? Now, I think both of those statements, including sanctuary, I think are, are biblically misleading at best. Because if you study the New Testament, the New Testament goes through great lengths to show that spaces 
aren't what's holy anymore. This is a new covenant. The temple is not in a physical space or building anymore. The temple is who? You. God's presence in that special holy way is now residing in the believer. And so, I'm going to give you some homework. I want you to think differently about your next seven days, this next week until you're back here again. I want you to live the next seven days of your life like you're living in the worship center. Because you are. Literally, everywhere you go, if you're a believer, you actually, you can't, you just, you can't, you can't escape it. It's coming with, right? You can't, the Holy Spirit, you're the worship center wherever you go. But do you live like that? This week, remember who you are. You are a temple. Okay, that's the first implication. We can't forget if we're going to live out this biblical truth. Okay, let's move to the second one. Number two, a temple must not be defiled. If you read the Old Testament, you cannot miss this point, right? God actually has what feels at times like endless regulations for holy spaces. Like you read the book of Leviticus, for example, and you see all of these laws. These are the parts of the Bible that you maybe skip when you read over. Not you. I'm talking like the person next to you. Not you, right? They skip when they get to that part because it's like, ah, oh, there's so many regulations because God does not want his holy space to be defiled. Think about Jesus. Do you remember in the Gospels when Jesus got really mad and he was flipping over tables? Where was he? The temple. Because he's very serious, very serious about holiness and that his temple would not be defiled. So we need to think intellectually about this. Why, out of all the words he could have used, why does God call your body as a believer, why does he call that a temple? He could have called it a home for the Holy Spirit. He could have called it uh, a residence for the Holy Spirit, but he calls it a temple very intentionally because he wants your life, he wants your actions, he wants your words to not defile, to not pollute his holiness because you are a temple. And this is why I think Paul speaks so strongly and so uniquely about sexual sin here. Now, a temple, we could have talked about a lot of things, right? Uh, we could have talked about eating or tattoos. I mean, there's so many ways you could take this subject, right? But Paul really kind of narrows in on sexual sin and how it can defile the temple. Okay, let's, let's, let's focus in a little deeper here. So I want to show you verses 15 and 16 again. So, verse 15, Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. And that's a quotation from Genesis when Adam and Eve in the first marriage that they come together as one flesh. And so Paul is saying to these Corinthians, many of them that are engaging in prostitution with these temple prostitutes that are coming from the temple of Aphrodite, he's saying that when you do this, when you engage in intercourse, you are uniting yourself, not just physically. This is what our culture doesn't understand. Not just physically, but also emotionally, also spiritually with someone else. He's saying, remember, your body is a part of who you are. It's not separate from your identity. But then Paul takes it to a whole nother level. And this is, we've now hit the discomfort level for American 
American Christians even, because sex is something we really struggle with in our culture. And he takes it to another level, and he says, when we have sex with someone who is not our spouse, we're not only defiling our marriage or our future marriage, but we're defiling the temple of God who is in us. He's saying, you're not just bringing your body, your flesh, to that situation. He's saying, you're bringing Christ with you. He's saying, if your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, you're bringing the temple of the Holy Spirit with you. And that is a serious offense in the eyes of God who cares so much about holiness. So let me very seriously talk about this. If you are engaged in sexual sin like this, in prostitution, right, in hookup apps, in an affair, and you are sinning against God with his holy temple, it is critical that you seek the forgiveness of God today. Today. You come to him on your knees later if you need to, and you seek forgiveness, and it is critical that you, what the Bible calls, repent. That means not just to ask forgiveness, that you run, you flee from that sin, you turn from that sin, and you turn to God. And then if you really want to be successful in repentance, you have to do something today. I'm speaking very strongly to some of you in this room. You have to tell someone today. Otherwise, you're just going to go back to it. You need to tell your best friend. You need to tell your house leader, somebody, your spouse. You see, the only way to walk out of the darkness is to start walking into the light. And for some of you in this room, unfortunately, I, I, I even feel like I need to use the, the word many of you in this room. You may be caught in pornography, which, again, you're taking the temple of God to this situation. And if that's you, the same thing on your knees. This is a high calling temple. Forgiveness, repentance. I, I do think sometimes people underestimate the pull of pornography, which is something we don't talk about enough. Uh, for, for many people, uh, chemically what's happening in your brain, this is an addiction. And so if you're going to get free from it, you've got to get free from it. Like someone's going to get free from alcohol or nicotine. You need other people. You need recovery. You need a group. There are groups out there like this. When you get home later, Google Quest 180. It's a Christian recovery group for this. There's one right in Blaine. Seek help. Find God. Remember who you are. And not just a body with physical needs. You're a temple. This is such a high calling. I mean, you may be here this morning. Maybe you're not even a Christian. Maybe just your friend told you to come here. Your family member dragged you here. And if you're not a Christian, my guess is that you're listening to this going like, why do Christians live like this? Like such an intense obedience to Jesus on this, especially in a, such a countercultural way. Okay, I think that's a fair question. Why would we do that? And I would say we do that in part because of what we said and in part because of point number three. And point number three is, I think, where it all comes together. Let me show you number three. Number three is this. You are a temple, which means that our bodies belong to God. Okay, that's in the word of God. Look at verse 19 and 20 again. I want to show this to you. So Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God 
with your bodies. So why should Christians live so radically in obedience, in sexual purity? Why? The Bible says, because we were bought at a price. Like the fact that you've been bought, the fact you've been purchased by God, it means that your body, it's not actually your own. But do we live like that? I'm not sure that we do. It's like, okay, if somebody lends me their car and I'm driving their car for a week, I'm not going to go drive their car 100 miles an hour, right? I'm not going to be driving off-road like I'm in some cool Jeep commercial, right? Not that you could do that in plane anyway, right? But I, I'm not going to do that. How am I going to treat that body? I'm going to treat it like it's not my own. Do, your, do you treat your body that way? Like it's not yours? Like it's not yours to just give in to any desire that it has. It's his. He bought it with his life. And so we must operate it like he wants us to operate it. What does that even really mean, that he bought it? Let me tell you what it means. It means, followers of Jesus, that we essentially, if I can just paint this picture for you, we were on a conveyor belt towards hell. And that you and I were on this path where we were going to suffer in hell for all of eternity. It would never end. And let's not play around with it like most people do. We deserved it. We sinned against God, a holy God, the creator. We sinned against him. Some of us sexually in lewd sexual sin. We deserved the justice of God. And the only way off that conveyor belt is if justice could be paid. Enter Jesus Christ, who in his mercy and in his forgiveness, he comes to you in his love for you, in his mercy for you. And the word of God today says that he bought you. He bought you. That means that he paid the price to set you free, to ransom you for your sin. It means he died a death on the cross that you should have died, but he did it to rescue you so you could be forgiven through faith. And honestly, I think even right there, that would have been enough. I deserve to go to hell And yet Jesus Christ, knowing that, came and died in my place. That enough makes me want to say, God, I want to live for you. I realize that you bought this body. I want to live. I want to take my body, and I want to bring glory to you through my body. That would have been enough, but God is even better than that. God is so good. He is so kind. He is so generous that the Bible says in Ephesians 1 that as proof that he bought you with his blood— God has then put the Holy Spirit in you, it says, as a deposit, as proof, as a sign that he has even greater things for you in the future. That is the word of God. And Christians, the world out there is squawking loudly, and as they squawk, it is critical that you remember who you are. I don't care what they say. You are not just bones in flesh. You are immortal. Your body, renewed, is going to live forever. Your body is not your own. It's been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Your body is not just a clump of cells and flesh and bones. Your body is a holy space for the living God of the universe. Remember who you are. You are a temple. Let me pray.
Lord Jesus, remind us, remind us, remind us again from your word who you are. This world, it screams at us all of these things that we need to do with our bodies, God, but it's not of you. It is of your enemy, the devil. Bring us back to your word. Bring us back to your truth. It's in your word, God, where light is. And Lord, we're so thankful that you would dwell in us even amongst our sin. And so, Lord, now as we come to worship, we just praise you from within. And we glorify you for what you've done. It's your name we pray. Amen.